It's, uh, you know, my whole thing is as long as I can be out there in the ring and, and I'm hanging with the, the Brock Lesnar's, the Kurt Angles, the Triple H's, you know what, if I'm on an equal level as those guys, why should I retire? I still have a lot that I, I, I'm at a point now. Good money too, I'm thinking. Well, yeah, the money's great. I've made my money and, and you know, I've done well with all that. Why I wrestle now is because I enjoy this. Plus, it's my turn to start giving back. I mean, you know, I've, uh, we've talked about being the locker room leader, but now I have the ability that I don't have the pressure on me, you know, financially I'm set. I've done everything that there is to do in this business. Now I'm enjoying myself. Plus, I'm taking some of these guys that I think have a lot of potential that really don't know what they're doing yet, and I can hands-on work with these guys. And that's my contribution, contribution to continuing the success of our industry. Um, but, you know, the biggest, my biggest worry in life, as far as wrestling is concerned, is that I'm in the ring, and some father who watched me for years takes his son, and he goes, you know, son, this is The Undertaker here. Boy, I wish you could have seen him win. That means it's time for me to hang it up. <laughs> when, when, when they're saying, you know, and when guys feel, you know, and, and hopefully they would tell me, the guys that I work with and the guys that I wrestle against, hopefully they would tell me, you know what, Tate, you might need to think about something, you know? Because I would hate to know that anybody ever laid back to protect me, you know? Because that's not what I'm about. So as long as I can go and I can hang with our top guys, I got no reason to leave. It don't seem real. I ain't gonna never breathe again, ever. How he's dead. And the other one, too. All on account of pulling a trigger. It's a hell of a thing killing a man. You take away all he's got, and all he's ever gonna have. Yeah. Well, I guess they had it coming. Contemporary American cinema, Clint Eastwood is our perennial last man standing. Always the father, never the son, Eastwood is a male Athena emerged fully formed, ready and willing to blast a hole right through any son of a bitch who asks too many questions. A lightning rod for cheap moralizing, a starkly ambivalent embodiment of American masculinity, a callous vigilante and a sentimental old fogey. Clint Eastwood has become indivisible from his many myths. That was a line from Akiva Gottlieb. It's a quote that sums up Clint Eastwood's quintessential character in American films for over 50 years. Now maybe it's a stretch, maybe it's semi-pretentious to say that a lot of those traits and characterizations belong to The Undertaker in the lexicon of WWE and professional wrestling. Now, if you've been a listener to the podcast for the last five years, you know we're big fans of The Undertaker. In fact, Charlie and I have said on multiple occasions that by the time his career is over, he might be our favorite wrestler of all time. 
Which sounds like a weird thing to say. Why couldn't he just be our favorite now? Well, it's complicated. I think it has to do with the fact that he's just always been there. No joke, since we've both been wrestling fans, and I'm going to rope Jason on this too, since we've all been wrestling fans from the very beginning, The Undertaker has been there. Not often front and center, but at least in the background, a presence, a constant. Often he was called the conscience of the WWE. But I think we just kind of took him for granted. Much like Clint Eastwood for periods of time. His presence in film is undeniable. His signature character is iconic and unforgettable. This comparison is apt in 2020, especially in a world turned upside down by COVID-19 and specifically WrestleMania 36. What was once on paper a simple one-on-one match between The Undertaker and AJ Styles took an unbelievable left turn that inexplicably opened the door to a really exciting alternative that was a major topic of conversation at WrestleMania 36 and potentially opened the path to new programming in WWE over the next few years. This is the story of what I consider an instant perfect 10. This is The Undertaker versus AJ Styles, the Boneyard match from WrestleMania 36. so puked out. Better luck next time, fool. (laughs) Listen, punk. To me, you're nothing but dog shit, you understand? And a lot of things can happen to dog shit. It can be scraped up with a shovel off the ground, it can dry up and blow away in the wind, or it can be stepped on and squashed. So take my advice, be careful where the dog shit you. So let's talk about the build and how we get to this point, because it is a wild road that starts off definitely going one way with our expectations already set for like, okay, this is how we think a match between AJ Styles and The Undertaker is going to look like. And it definitely ends up on the complete other side of the spectrum. So coming off the Royal Rumble in January, AJ Styles is injured. He takes a spear from Edge during Edge's pretty much his entrance and where he hits everybody with the spear that's in the ring and he over rotates and his shoulder is hurt. So while he's on the shelf though, like everybody starts to kind of get their dance partners for WrestleMania. And by the time we're getting into close to the second week, the third week of February, it's like, okay, AJ's going to be coming back soon. What's AJ going to do? Cause it's hard not to have AJ Styles in a prominent position based on his skill set and just based on his character, his standing in WWE. What are you going to do with him? So then it gets to around February 13th, and that's when their articles are starting to pop out, and there's starting to be little footnotes at the bottom of piece that are talking about AJ Styles is coming back to TV this week. Well, February 13th is significant because that's the first time we're starting to see articles that are coming out that are saying not only Styles going to be okay he'll be at Wrestlemania but the Undertaker has chosen him to be his opponent for Mania so then a couple days go by and then you have a piece coming out February 15th by Louis Dangor from Wrestle Talk. 
he quotes Dave Meltzer. Now Meltzer, this is more, this is definitely more of an opinion piece, but since it's coming from Meltzer, that means it is quoted ad nauseum and it is pulled and hyperlinked to in numerous articles. I really don't have a whole lot to say, but they can just frame their entire piece around these quotes that AJ is a heel. AJ can lose a taker and not be affected. These were reasons why he was painting AJ would be a great, a great opponent for Taker to face at WrestleMania, especially now at this point of Taker's career. And then uh, Dane Gore also references Paul Davis. Paul Davis, quote, his quote was significant because this is what I think people really grabbed onto and ran with over the next few weeks going into uh, the Mania build. And that was that AJ Styles is a modern-day Shawn Michaels and he could give Undertaker that type of match again. So then it's time for Monday Night Raw, February 17th. So only a few days have passed since all this really got moving. AJ comes out and boasts that he is Mr. WrestleMania. And he also says it doesn't matter who's next. And he names off a list of wrestlers, including The Undertaker and a few others. And he says that he isn't afraid of. And then finally, like, because keep in mind, this is also part of the build to Super Showdown. He boasts about winning the Tuaik Mountain Trophy in a gauntlet match with five other superstars. Uh, you know what? It's just a trophy. In the end, that's all it is. It's just something that you have guys wrestling for, which automatically raises the stakes on something. So you have AJ referencing that this is going to somehow make him improve his point that he is better. And then that really sets us up for Super Showdown. That's really all you really get. There's Again, you heard him mention The Undertaker, but there's nothing really that's connecting the two otherwise yet. So let's go to Super Showdown. February 27th, R-Truth is making quite the run in this gauntlet match. He has not only beaten Eric Rowan, but also Bobby Lashley and Andrade. And then coming out at number five is AJ Styles, who comes out and I mean, it's uh, it's a type of wrestling booking we've seen. It's not too different than what we've seen with Money in the Bank cash-in. Usually you have one opponent that's completely exhausted, usually the champion, the Money in the Bank uh, contract holder, cashes in and is able to take advantage of the situation. It's no different here. After all that R-Truth's already gone through and AJ is able to capitalize quickly and right away on R-Truth and the fatigue that's already set in from all of the opponents he's already faced. Calf crusher, quick tap out and you've got AJ now the number five guy who only has to wrestle one more guy and at this point it's, it's, it's supposed to be Rey Mysterio and that's when things start to go a little bit interesting here. We see some footage in the back. We see Anderson and Gallows down in this figure. Like you just see the boots and a black, looks like a black coat walks by. Kind of get the idea of who, who it might be. So then the Undertaker is who comes out instead of Rey Mysterio. The Undertaker makes his way down to the ring, shocks everybody, shocks the crowd, shocks AJ, choke slams him and beats him instantly to win the, the coveted Tuaik Mountain Trophy. So... That is that's that is our inciting incident. We're on the way now. So then March 2nd is the next Raw that we've got. So multiple days pass. And of course, everyone's writing about this. Everybody's talking about what can happen. I'll tell you, I, you can go back and look at a lot of the pieces. It's not very positive in the beginning. Having these moments, because I think it, it stems back to the quote-unquote match with Cena at WrestleMania, which really didn't feel like much of a match. It just felt like Undertaker just going in there and doing a quick workout appearance and that was it same sort of thing here but now we go to the march 2nd monday night raw when aj officially 
warns the Undertaker. I should be out here with a beautiful trophy, but someone, someone deprived me of that honor. Maybe you've heard of the Undertaker. I'm on a collision course with the Undertaker. Oh, and Undertaker, I hope you're watching today because I have a match with Aleister Black tonight. And after what I do to him, I want you to consider it a warning. Undertaker, you are a legend among legends. And you're, stri you're just trying to hold on to that spotlight that isn't yours anymore. Later that night, AJ is able to defeat Aleister Black and he does it using The Undertaker's signature cover. So it's continuing a feud now with AJ and Aleister and it sets up a match for them at the Elimination Chamber. It's a no disqualification match. This is on March 8th. So this is really like, I mean, it, it's a micro build to a pay-per-view for both of them, which is fine. Like it's Elimination Chamber. There really doesn't need to be much for this because as you'll see, there was really only one thing that really needed to happen on this show in terms of this particular match. This body, Ballister. Undertaker makes a surprise appearance in the no DQ match and is able to get Alistair the win back over AJ Styles. So now this is when things start really ramping up and it takes an interesting turn because as soon as this happened at this show, that same night, you've got pieces that are starting to drop on the web that say, well, maybe we won't get AJ Styles and Undertaker one-on-one. -on -one. Maybe there's been some worry maybe there's been some just overall change in plans and that we will get a handicap match we'll get aj and the good brothers the oc taking on alistair black and the undertaker which alistair black fans could probably be like i mean this is awesome this is the rub that alistair needs to really you know continue that rise that he's got and not the worst thing for the undertaker honestly if you're thinking about it because it's like cool alistair black can take a lot of the bumps can work the majority of the match and Taker can come in on some hot tag on a hot tag or if it's one of those matches where it has to be two hot tags or whatever but things get a little different and in fact things take a really big shift in terms of tone with this feud the very next night on Raw March 9th AJ has what I'll just simply call the promo three years ago at Wrestlemania I saw the Undertaker get beat by Roman Reigns and after the match, The Undertaker folded his jacket, took off his gloves and his hat, 
and laid them nice and neat, right in the middle of the ring. I watched him walk up the aisle, and halfway up, he threw his fist up, as if he were riding off into the sunset. Truthfully, I think that he probably should have done that when Brock Lesnar ended his streak, but whatever, it doesn't matter. The point is, the point is, it was a beautiful, powerful moment. And The Undertaker ruined it. He ruined it when he came back to the WWE. What was it, Taker? Was it your ego? What, what was it, the spotlight? Whatever it is, it's gonna cost you because I want you at WrestleMania. I don't see this mythical monster anymore. I don't see this phenom anymore. What I do see is a broken down old man named Mark Galloway. Undertaker should have retired 10 years ago when he was in his prime. I don't know what keeps him coming back, but I've got a pretty good idea. It's his wife. It's Michelle. It's Michelle McCool. Hey, Michelle, I hope you're watching at home because I'm about to let the cat out of the bag here. Michelle McCool and The Undertaker are married, if you didn't know. <laughs> hey, and she plays him like a fiddle. Anything and everything she wants, she gets. Despite her husband walking down the aisle, getting in this ring and getting hurt every time he steps in it now. Hey, they got a beautiful, beautiful family. Everything's great. She's just the most conniving person I have ever met in my entire life. So hey, how about this? How about I give The Undertaker a little advice? I'm a good guy. Undertaker, your wife is gonna run you into the ground. And I'm gonna help her. I am going to take The Undertaker's soul at WrestleMania. I'm going to do exactly what his wife wants me to do. It's pretty simple. I'm challenging The Undertaker to a one-on-one -on -one match at WrestleMania. I mean, what do you got to lose? You've already lost your dignity, your pride, your mystique. Like I said, you're just a broken down old man. So accept my challenge taker and fight me at WrestleMania and I promise you, I will literally put the nail in your coffin. So now the aggregators are in full force. We've got listicles just pumping out all over the place. Five reasons WWE must allow AJ Styles to win. Five reasons why AJ Styles exposed Undertaker. Five reasons why AJ Styles versus The Undertaker will be great. Dot, dot, dot. And five reasons it won't be. Just a ton of these pieces that 
really are just, I mean, they're all, they're all editorials at this point. So it's not like any of this stuff is really giving you anything new in terms of news. This is just stuff shaping opinions. And these opinions are that, well, AJ lost in five seconds to The Undertaker at Super Showdown. So is that indicative of what we're going to get at WrestleMania? We're going to get this short, really like, uh, you know, John, John Cena-esque match that we got with Undertaker a few WrestleManias ago. Is that what we're going to get? And then there's the flip side of, well, we're supposed to have a real match. Well, is it, can Undertaker really keep up with them? Can can he really do anything? We've seen these Undertaker matches recently, and they're, they're more hit and miss than ever compared to where he was during that epic run with the, the Shawn Michaels, the Triple H, the CM Punk, all those epic WrestleMania matches he had in a row. So there's a lot of pessimism now that is cloaking this match. I also think that the moment where he calls him Mark Calloway and the moment where it's really like, we're going to treat him like he's a guy now and not the gimmick, which is kind of where it had been for the length of his run. There, Besides Sarah, quote unquote Sarah, as we did in season two with the invasion with Diamond Dallas Page and everything, there, there really hasn't been that emphasis on The Undertaker as the man. It's been the gimmick. So this was one of those also just divisive topics. Like, do you agree with him doing this with The Undertaker? Do you not? The next thing you really have to mention is when things go sideways for the world at this point. March 12th is when Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz tests positive for COVID-19 and the NBA officially goes into shutdown mode. Now, in the days coming up to that is when talk of empty arenas, no fans, things of that nature were being talked about. And the WWE was starting to have those conversations as well. Mm -hmm. But so I get done that weekend, I go home, I'm flying out now to the Performance Center for this show on the 11th, on the 10th, and um, the NBA is, I can't remember if at that point they had canceled or they were about to. And and there was a debate happening about whether, you know, they were going to play with no fans. And some of the players were saying, we're not playing with no fans. And so... As I'm flying down there in the morning, I, I called Vince and I said, hey, I haven't seen the Performance Center yet, but I'm gonna go out, you know, we don't really do anything halfway, so I'm gonna go out on the limb and say it looks pretty spectacular. Maybe when I get done doing this live show tonight, uh, or tomorrow night, maybe we should just leave the setup up. Like, I know it's costly and all that, but maybe just in case something cancels over the next couple of weeks where we can't go into a town we could at least get everybody to Florida. Mm-hmm. And Vince was like, oh, that's probably smart. You know what? Get me the, get me, run the numbers, get me the numbers back today, and I'll let you know. By the time we get to Tuesday night and we do the production meeting and all that stuff, and I get done that, I'm calling Vince up and I'm like, I don't know the numbers yet, but man, it's getting worse. He's like, yeah, it's getting a lot worse. Let's talk in the morning. By the morning, it's like, yeah, hey, we're coming. More than likely, we're going to be coming there. And, um, doesn't matter what the numbers are at this point in time. <laughs> so we, we, you know, we leave up, we leave everything up. By the time we do that live show and that show is over, Vince is not only saying, yeah, look, the, the trucks on the way to Detroit are on the side of the road, but they're turning around, they're headed your way. You know, we're going to do SmackDown from there tomorrow. Everything is shutting down. Man, for the first time, he goes, we might be doing WrestleMania from there. So you can see WWE is already a few steps ahead on this, or at least they think they are. They're working with the potential that of the worst case scenario. Now, the next Raw is in the empty performance center. It's, it's March 16th. 
in the performance center we get the contract signing and this is where uh this is where again the never another pivotal moment in the feud because coming down to the ring when the under uh, the undertaker's dead man music hits does not look like the undertaker it looks like mark calloway in fact it looks more like looks like big evil it looks like the american badass he's not the dead man is what it is and so he comes down to the ring for uh for the contract signing, flips the table, all this. You have AJ and the and the OC, you have them on the Titan Tron, and you have this, you really have this cat and mouse thing where like you're just waiting for Undertaker to get his hands on this guy. And what's great is Taker is selling just selling those comments that AJ made on the mic so well. Like this guy legitimately pissed off. And so now it becomes AJ's gonna send out, he sends out the good brothers, he sends them out to deliver the contract uh, to The Undertaker to bring it back to AJ Styles. And, of course, Undertaker just lays waste to these guys. And I love the moment when he shoves it into either Anderson or Gallo's throat. And and that's how that's how the segment ends. And AJ's expressions on the Titantron really sell it. I mean, he's, he's totally selling you with, yeah, maybe this wasn't the right call going about it this way with The Undertaker. But at the same time, he's never going to say that. Now, as we move ahead a week, March 23rd, the Monday Night Raw is now where AJ gets to counter or gets to somewhat answer what happened during uh, the contract signing the week before. And he answers it by adding another nice layer to this. Did you see uh, on the on Undertaker's Twitter account? Did you see this? Yeah, he's, he's got a Twitter. It's ridiculous. The Undertaker has a Twitter account. He likes this, he likes that, and he's posting selfies on Instagram. Who is this man? Where has he gone? I, I don't want the Mark Calloway that's posting selfies, getting on Twitter and writing this and that. I don't want that. I want the Undertaker from yesteryear. That's who I want. Oh, humble styles here is gonna give the WWE universe what they want. I'm gonna give you the WWE universe what you want to see. I'm gonna bring back the dead man. I'm gonna bring back the dead man in a match that he would love to be in. Right in his wheelhouse. A boneyard match. Oh, yes. Yes. Yes, this is your match, Taker. This is for you. Hey, listen. When it's over, because I said I was going to bury you, I got the perfect place picked out, the perfect plot for you. And ironically enough, it is the same plot that Michelle McCool, your wife, picked out when she buried your career. <laughs> so now stakes have been raised. We've added this gimmick match stipulation, which is fine, it, it, honestly, when you think about it, because having this type of thing, even though we didn't really know what a boneyard match was at this point, within a very short span of time, this had become a very, very personal affair. And so that's why... This makes sense to have this type of gimmick match, even though we really didn't know what it was. So now this makes things really, really interesting because also about a week prior to this, somewhere around March 16th is when 
it is announced that WWE has moved WrestleMania to the Performance Center, which now really does just kind of change what we were all expecting and thinking about WrestleMania, all this due to COVID-19. And with this also, it's not shocking that then that's why a week later we have the, the gimmick added onto this because it was discussed, it was talked about what could be done with some of these matches. Is there a possibility that some could be shot in other places besides the Performance Center? There were obviously two matches chosen to to go that route, one being the Firefly Funhouse match, the other one being this one. So we don't really know what a Boneyard match is, but it's appropriate because this is a very personal feud. As personal a feud as The Undertaker has had, and he has had some that have gotten really really personal for him. I mean, one, uh, Triple H uh, messed with his bike. You don't do that. But then you also have, like, years later, you have Paul Bear passing away, uh, right as the WrestleMania build is starting with CM Punk and Punk using that and making that a real part of the storyline. So it's no, he's no stranger to having a personal edge to the storylines, but this is the first time it's been this type of personal. So March 30th, Monday Night Raw rolls around, and this is when not only is it The Undertaker's response to the Boneyard match and all that, it's his response to really everything that's taken place because he really doesn't talk during that contract signing. It's just him taking care of business. So we get the closest we've seen to the American badass, the biker taker, to Big Evil. It all comes out in this beautiful four-minute promo. AJ Styles. Or should I say, Alan Jones. I mean, since we're being real now, you know, for such a small man, you got a really big mouth. And I don't know if you have a big set. You're just really that stupid. Either way, your mouth's writing checks, your ass can't cash. I'm sure you thought by dropping some pipe bombs, you'd get under my skin. Son, I've heard a lot worse from far better than you. Although I must admit, there are some truths to what you've been saying. You said maybe 10, 15 years ago, you probably wouldn't want to try me. You're damn right you wouldn't want to. You were content being a big fish in a little pond. Because you knew back then you didn't have what it takes to hang with the Undertaker. Stone Cold. The Rock. Shawn Michaels. Triple H. Kurt Angle. Mick Foley. Eddie Guerrero, Booker T, Edge, the very best this business had to offer. The phenomenal one, my ass. You waited till they were all gone. Except for me. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I've got far more matches behind me than I do in front of me. But Alan, you stepped in something now there's no coming back from. Your foolish pride is making really bad decisions for you. All the things you said about me, I get it. I do, it's just business. Where you crossed the line though, was the first time you mentioned her. I think your pride is playing games with you again. I think you're mad because she does the faith breaker, AKA the Styles Clash better than you do. 
she got it over. No matter the reason, you're gonna pay the ultimate price for disrespecting her. My wife, Michelle McCool. And you're gonna pay that price in a boneyard. Remember, that was your idea. You want to be relevant at the showcase of Immortals, WrestleMania. And who better to make that happen than The Undertaker? Try me. I'll make you famous. And I hope you bring those two ass clowns, Gallows and Anderson, with you. All three of you can feel the wrath of the unholy trinity I'm bringing with me. Just know you will feel the pain. You will get hurt. And you will suffer. And most importantly, you will rest in peace. A lot on your minds, uh, especially with, you know, there's a few days away from that Boneyard match with, uh, with The Undertaker, which I just want to jump right into it. Do you think that maybe you've taken things too far with the Phenom? In what way? And this is what we do. I'm trying to get everybody what they want to see out of the Undertaker, right? Like, what do I need to do to make sure this guy's at the top of his game? How mad do I need to get him so he'll just be himself for once? I mean, when's the last time we saw the real Undertaker? I'm doing you guys a favor. And, and we certainly appreciate that because I felt that real Undertaker on Raw this past Monday, and he said, you were content, this is his quote, being a big fish in a small pond, and then he ran down a list of WWE Hall of Famers, uh, and that said, he said, you waited for them to leave before coming to WWE, and now you're facing him. Does he speak any truth there, or does your global resume speak for itself? I mean, come on. It's a, it's a global resume. I didn't stay in one place and, and fought against just, you know, your average Joes. I mean, I, I was up against Kurt Angle. I mean, this guy's an Olympic champion. This guy is amazing. And, and at his time, I, I mean, come on, Kurt Angle. And just so we're talking, a lot of those guys that, that were in the WWE came to where I was working. And then I went to New Japan and did some stuff over there. I mean, listen, I would have been there earlier if I could have, but sometimes things work out the way they do. And, and uh, you know, it's a different time. Guys aren't as big as they used to be, meaning guys my size are given a chance where back then they wouldn't even have been given a chance to get into the ring. So that's all a bunch of crap that uh, the Undertaker said. I hope it makes himself feel better, you know, honestly. Listen, guys, he's playing exactly into whatever I want him to, you know, like he's in the palm of my hand. I've got it because he's so mad he's not gonna even know what to do with me he's gonna do you never get into a fight when you're angry because your emotions get the best of you and you screw up guess what that's exactly what's happened to the undertaker i remember when things look bad and it looks like you're not gonna make it then you gotta get mean i mean plum mad dog mean because if you lose your head and you give up, then you neither live nor win. That's just the way it is. So now it's April 4th. It's WrestleMania. It's day one. It's the first time we're going to have a two-day WrestleMania, Saturday and Sunday. 
the Boneyard match is the closer on April 4th. And it totally, based on the production value and everything that's put into it, deserved to be in this final slot. Now let's break this thing down from start to finish, going through all the little bits that we can here. The start of this has a series of shots of headstones and other types of graveyard iconography, really. And you've got a score that's very creepy, like this really just kind of nightmarish type of tone, this uneasiness, uh, a lot of dissolves. You have even a, that hint of, of fog in the air. Like this, this is set up to be a, a, a 100% an Undertaker type of match. And then, in fact, we hear the gong. We hear the beginning of the Dead Man theme, and we see a hearse that pulls into this boneyard, this area that we're going to be doing this. We see this car pull in, and maybe somewhat comically, the doors open, and a bunch of druids came, come out, which, you know, it's WrestleMania, and you know The Undertaker means business when the druids come out to play. And they pull a casket out of the back of the hearse as the dead man music is playing. And then as soon as they open it, it's AJ Styles who pops out and his theme music starts to play. We even get his name almost like it's uh, the opening, the opening credits of the film. We see him emerge and immediately is taunting. He is boasting that this isn't something scary to this whatsoever. There's... There's nothing to be afraid of or whatever. And uh, it's it's already flipped. But even just like this short little series here, the, the shots in the beginning and the hearse rolling in, you already know this is not like anything really WWE's done before with the exception of uh, Matt Hardy versus Bray Wyatt, the, the Hardy compound. That's the only, it's the only kind of comp that you're going to have with this. And I say that because the production value you can tell from minute one is unlike anything else that WWE has put out before. Again, with that one exception. This isn't like your your typical kind of brawl in the back where you've got the one camera, the two cameras. And we're going to have more on that later. So then, as AJ's waiting on The Undertaker, and he's looking around again, he's... He is all smiles. He thinks he is in a perfect position here. And as he wonders where the Undertaker's at, almost does like the Hulk Hogan hand to the ear to see if he can hear him. We hear the we hear the revving of the bike and it's getting louder in the background. And then all of a sudden Metallica music kicks in. We is now that we're dead from the metallica album hardwired to self-destruct it's this is edited so well and this is when i remember being right up out of my seat like oh we're doing it because i think i kind of expected it was going going to be like rolling or uh or maybe even 
dead man walking, you know, the, the theme he had after Roland, but no, it's this Metallica track. And we see the undertaker on his bike, just rolling down the road. And, and it times out perfectly when he enters the boneyard, parks it. And just like, just like in movies, the best entrances of characters start with the boots. You've seen it a million times when a car door opens in a movie the camera is usually at the bottom. We see those. The first thing we see are shoes or boots or anything. Think of my cousin Vinny. I'm just throwing it's the first one that comes into my mind. I'm throwing out. The first thing we see is Joe Pesci's boots as he gets out of his car when he's down in Alabama. It's a huge thing in movies. And what I love is that they went to the same thing here. We see the Undertaker get off the bike and the camera slowly rises up and he gets his title card, the Undertaker. And he looks. As much hay swagger, booger red, everything we've always wanted. Again, I'll use that phrase. Everything we've wanted for years. Here it comes. So now, this next part here is where we get into what's called talkie taker. Which you've heard us talk about before. And I know a lot of you have definitely heard it. It's, it's, there's one thing when the Undertaker gets into this, this type of, this part of his character where he is in the, the biker mode, so to speak. I'll just call that for short. He gets a little more talky. Doesn't really. Uh, he doesn't gets into a lot more audible selling of things, and it also allows him to be a little bit more of a trash talker. So, for you all's benefit here, what I wanted to do because this this opening is so good. The opening here of where the actual where they actually are going to start fighting is so good. Taker gets off the bike. We see him walking up to AJ, and that's when the talking starts. And what I thought would be fun. I have written it out. I had gotten a transcript of this part of the scene. So then that way we can have a little fun with this. Uh, so you may have to forgive my AJ Styles impression. You all will hopefully recognize the Undertaker one. So here, here we go. This, this is These are the lines of dialogue exchanged between AJ Styles and the Undertaker here at the beginning of this. Wow, there he is. I, I, didn't, I didn't think you were going to show up. Yeah. Hey, hey, does Michelle know you're out this late? Yeah. She let you come out. Hey, hey, look, look, look. I took the liberty of digging your grave for you. Doesn't it look nice? You dug your own grave, son. Oh, oh, you think so? Yeah, I know so. Oh, come on, old man. Yeah. Let's see what you got. Mumbling. I, this is, it's indecipherable, but whatever. We're gonna see. Oh, you think you still got it? Well, I got enough for you, swagger. Just kidding. That's what you think. <laughs> That's what you think. And then he grabs some dirt. Taker decks him. Oh, get up, boy. Hey, get up. You wanted this. Hey, where are you going? He decks him again. Come on, tough guy. Get up. You want to dig a hole, huh? Well, I'll show you a hole. Decks him again. Where are you going, AJ? Huh? Hey, hey. Hey, Alan. Where are you going, son? Right off the bat, we've gotten talkie taker, talking trash, using Alan. Like, him calling AJ Alan is so funny, and it was one of those things from the first from the first time he did it in that promo after uh, after the boneyard match challenge where it was sort of like oh it's gone to this level now for the undertaker where he's going to start calling out aj styles as alan so now we start getting into act one act one of this of this fight as i call it now it officially begins if you are clocking the fight from beginning to end it takes about three minutes and 16 seconds to get into the fight once we get through introductions once we get through all those opening shots we get through the kind of the initial trash talk and everything. 316 is when this starts. And it is all Taker. 
just decking AJ. And you would think this thing was over with after one punch just by the sound of those shots from The Undertaker. So they work their way over to where the hearse is, and Taker's just going at just taking it to AJ. And then at one point he spots like like this like a blunt object on the ground. He picks it up. Now AJ is leaning against the car. He goes to throw throw like a, a backhanded punch with this object. AJ ducks and Taker the object punctures through the glass, but so does Taker's fist, and his arm gets cut. He Goldberg's himself almost. It's almost exactly what it is. He Goldberg's himself. His arm gets cut. Not a plan, not a part of the shoot, but it continues on. His response is great. Son of a bitch. And from there, you're like, okay, well, maybe this is the first opening. It's not. Taker still maintains control. AJ does get a comeback in a little while here with a kick in the balls at around six minutes into the fight, but not before Taker gets him down and don't ever mention my wife, you silly, stupid son of a bitch. I don't know if he had silly in there, but you know, whatever. So around seven, around seven minutes, 33 seconds is when Taker looks like he's got AJ on the ropes. He's got him over by now the hole that AJ had dug that he is saying is the Undertaker's grave. Now, AJ is about to go in when all of a sudden from off camera we hear, Hey, dead man! Sounds like my Gallows and Anderson or my AJ Styles are all the same, but whatever. Now, let's think about, let's shift for a second and talk about your classic conflict, your heroic quest conflict, your best heroic stories or any type of movie and I think Armageddon is one of the best examples of this. I want you to use that one as well. Your hero is in a tree, and the you as the writer, or you as the creator, using your antagonist, have to throw as many rocks as you can at at the hero because that's the drama. Ooh, are they gonna are they gonna knock him out of the tree? Is he gonna get hurt? What's going to ultimately like is any of this ultimately going to subdue the hero? And that is just the, that's the root of, of conflict and the drama. Think about where we're at here. The Undertaker's up in the tree. AJ's throwing some rocks. They have had no effect whatsoever. In fact, if anything, the Undertaker's caught the rocks and thrown them right back at AJ. So if that first attempt in Act 1 has failed, Act 2 is where the tactics change. Now instead of just AJ throwing rocks at the Undertaker, now you have Gallows and Anderson. The reason I use Armageddon earlier is that Armageddon, there is probably very few movies like Armageddon that continuously every it feels like every 10 to 15 minutes there are new rocks being thrown at the protagonist that seemingly are going to subdue them in the mission but ultimately they find a way to overcome them and that's what keeps raising the stakes for the next time they have rocks thrown at them it's like well they've overcome all this can they overcome this thing now so let's bring it literally back down to earth here because with this moment here in Act 2, which begins around 7 minutes, 33 seconds. you got Gallows and Anderson. Let's see what they're going to do. Let's. See. This was anticipated that they would get involved. Here they are. Undertaker starts to make his way over to them. They're over by this barn. And then suddenly, suddenly, backlighting just shines right through the, right through the, the space in between the boards on the barn. And 
there's all this light now that's coming through the barn. And then suddenly, a few of the doors or panels just come crashing down. And uh, we've got more evil druids. Uh, I don't know if there's some of the same ones from earlier, if they went and got some more evil druids, but nevertheless, we have evil druids probably around, it looks like 10 of them or so, roughly around that. Everybody starts to surround the Undertaker. And, God, I... This made me laugh. This made me laugh because all I kept thinking was, and some of you may remember this, TNT back in the day, they made a lot of, they made a lot of, uh, made a lot of more TV movies. And I would see, I remember seeing a lot of these promos, especially during Nitro days. And there was one, it was called Purgatory. And it was this Western that took place, like it was supposed to be like in this kind of religious way, Purgatory. Like it's this place between heaven and hell where all these, seemingly all these Western mythical heroes are residing now and they haven't gone to either place that they're stuck here well at one point like when the <clears throat> when there's well at one point when it's the throwdown you have all of a sudden you have randy quaid show up with a shotgun as doc holiday which is just compared to his brother laughable but he shouts out the odds are getting better I was hoping at this point when the evil druids and Gallows and Anderson surround Taker that all of a sudden Kane would show up with a shotgun and yell out, the odds are getting better. I, that's the worst Kane impression of all time. It is not that guttural, but you get the idea. If he showed up, maybe he needs to do a Doc Holiday. That's it. Kane shows up with a Doc Holiday impression. <laughs> I don't even know what that would sound like, but whatever. I had talked to some people there, like they thought like Michelle would show up and I was like, that'd be pretty bad. I don't think that would have, I, I don't know how much of the tone would have changed at that point it just would have felt weird to see the undertaker and his wife fighting evil druids and gallows and anderson i'm glad they stuck to uh, to no backup in the end if that was the case but you have undertaker now surrounded by all these guys and what you're also anticipating is well maybe no one's going to show up and drop a line but the undertaker is surely going to drop a line you know talkie taker is back for another round and sure enough here we go oh hey man we're going to do this and let's do it. And then bam, throwing punches, druids, gals and Anderson, boom, 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 boom. Takers fighting off all these evil druids who really not the best fighters, but oh, well, you probably paid a cheap rate to get them, but that's okay. 914. So only about 45 seconds of this goes by. Then all of a sudden gals and Anderson. Okay. Let's, let's find some rocks to throw at this guy. They attack him with a shovel, but even as they do, Taker is able to overcome this. And now he's got the shovel, and he's laying the smack down here with on Gallows and Anderson. And then just when you think then that he's, all right, he's got all these guys, so now what's going to be next? Well, 30 seconds later, AJ, and I swear this is right out of WWF In Your House or WWF for WrestleMania, the arcade game. You know what I'm talking about when I say this. He hits Undertaker with, for all intents and purposes, is a tombstone for a grave and it's hilarious because you're just like if you remember that game i think the undertaker hits you like everybody is punching with like these objects that are related to their character like i i'm pretty sure as charlie and i have joked before that when you punch yokozuna turkeys fell out of him don't know why big fat guy i don't know but you have the undertaker usually throwing tombstones well aj hits him with a tombstone and that's the rock that really unsettles taker from the tree and it really is kind of the, it's the cascading moment when now AJ's got the real upper hand in this. 
so now for pretty much the next like five six minutes it's really it's really just AJ taking it to the Undertaker through a series of punches through all this and at one point I don't know if this was legit or not AJ breaks his finger punching the Undertaker on the ground for a while but he's also starting to taunt him again now AJ's starting to get in the taunts very much uh, picking up where he's left off with his promos the Undertaker gets up and is kind of he's kind of staggering by this it's one of the walls to I I don't know if it's necessarily one of the walls to the the barn but it's like this kind of makeshift looking wall that doesn't look very tough AJ smashes the Undertaker through that wall and what's really good is it's a believable it's believable in terms of how Undertaker sells it which is he is gasping for air like you could believe that his internals are really hurt by that because he's over 50 and it's the Undertaker Jesus Christ he's been he's he's been through so many surgeries that I mean nothing probably works properly for this guy and so he gets smashed through this wall he's gasping for air and again like AJ's refrain the entire time is let me bury you man just let me bury you like you know it's just relentless with that just wanting to get rid of this guy because when you go back to his promos a lot of it has to do with this guy who's past his prime this guy who's only sticking around because his wife you know is, is won't let him go won't let him leave wrestling behind they she's pushing him into doing it and everything well then 12 minutes and 28 seconds comes one of the funniest little moments you could have in this because as the undertaker is just a beaten down man you have aj just taunting away at him <laughs> he gives him the finger and it's it looks really funny because it's just like it's just this old man just on the ground nearly on nearly completely collapsed and he throws up a middle finger and then it but what i i'll tell you what i like about it is it's this moment where they're you know aj's gotten worked pretty good in this it really reminded me of the thing at the very end when you have McCready and Childs just kind of looking at each other and they're wondering, like, you know, maybe you're it, maybe you're the thing, maybe I am, whatever. Uh, but nothing's going to happen. We're going to be out here in this cold and we're just going to freeze to death. And it's just this real stark type of ending. And that's what it feels like here. Except, of course, AJ's clearly got the upper hand here on, on The Undertaker. 30 seconds later, Taker gets knocked into the grave. AJ smashes the shovel over him, knocks him into the grave. Okay, here's where I would I would have done a little bit more on the production side. Because here's what here's how it goes down. Taker's in the grave. AJ makes his way up to the track, uh, makes his way up to the um, the digger, and he's got the dirt ready. He's gonna just drop it on him. Which, you know, basically at this point, it's like, okay, we're doing a buried alive match. It's basically what we're doing here. And he's going to drop the dirt on him. He's going to bury the guy. And then all of a sudden, Undertaker just appears behind him. That supernatural aspect of the Undertaker. He just appears behind AJ and then just decks him. And it's back on again. It's the equivalent of, of the Undertaker doing the setup in a match that we've been so used to. Here's where I would have skewed a little differently. When the Undertaker gets knocked into that grave... There are a lot of shots of AJ going up. There's not a lot of shots of The Undertaker in the grave. There may be a few, but there's not a lot. What you needed to do was basically what I call the Rocky V fight montage. If you remember Rocky V, when the street fight's going on, him and Tommy, early on Tommy just really is taking it to Rocky. So much so that 
Rocky starts to, the brain damage starts to kick in and it leads to this montage of all these images from the rest of the movies. And you're just, it, it, it's, it's just not looking good for him. And you're seeing like the moment he gets destroyed by Clubber Lang, the fight with Ivan Drago, you see him burying Mickey. And I think there's even some of that with Apollo. But then like there's that turn in there where you hear Mickey say, get up. Uh, get up you son of a bitch because Mickey loves you and it's awesome because then you hear the Rocky theme and he gets up and he's like hey yo Tommy I didn't hear no bell and it continues the same thing needed to happen here the Undertaker's in the grave you you punch in with a close up on him right and as you punch in on him that's when you can have this this montage I could describe it for you the thing is I'm always trying to push myself and I'm also somebody I want to put my money where my mouth is especially when it comes to creating stuff. So I'm going to play it for you. I tried to make the best one that I could to represent what I'm talking about. This is what I think they should have been playing here for The Undertaker as he's in that grave. We punched in on him. We've zoomed in on him. He's out just like he's been so many times. Trust me, Undertaker. I'm doing the world a favor. I'm going to bury you right here, right now. cool is you come out of that and then all of a sudden you you hear the gong boom the undertaker's eyes pop open you see him sit up in the grave like we've seen him do that michael myers maneuver so many times and then have the eyes roll in the back of his head like that awesome image we've seen of him for years and then that's when you cut to him appearing behind aj styles i think it's one of those things that would be really powerful for fans of the undertaker and even casual fans because that's part of the neat thing here is those those casual fans who are watching this like wondering who is this guy and then you have all these these things that 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 you're shown in this montage if it was in video form you would get the the video you get all the the video cuts of it but it would be something really new also very cool for the fans like fans of undertaker throughout the years to see that and remember that it 
it hopefully gets you pumped up for act three here because now in act three we've got about we're about 14 and a half minutes in when undertaker pops up behind aj we've got about now 10 minutes left we're going to be headed these last 10 minutes are where the action really does have to pick up and reach that ultimate point so now not only if we're going to use our tree analogy again taker's been knocked out or like basically he's been knocked out of the tree to the point where AJ's now is going to climb into the tree, maybe, and he's going to take it over, but not so fast. Taker gets up, he's taking him out, and he's getting back into the tree, and now he's going to assert a dominant position on it. There's a line at 15 minutes and 13 seconds. You don't, hey, hey, you don't last 30 years without being able to take some ass kickings, AJ. I wish you would have called him Alan. That would have been so much better. Hey, Alan, you don't last 30 years without being able to take some ass kickings. At 1525, he drops the line, the unholy trinity. We'll get into that a little bit later. And then, as AJ is retreating, and by the way, him climbing up that ladder is comically funny because The Undertaker does not look like he climbs too many ladders anymore, and he probably shouldn't just based on his health. It does look like that HVAC guy who's about maybe two and a half years past when he should have retired. That's what it looks like as he climbs up onto the roof where AJ has now retreated. Well, as AJ continues his retreat, Undertaker throws his hands up and an explosion just occurs behind AJ. It's like, whoa. And then shortly after, Gallows and Anderson appear. Fight, fight, fight again. He takes, he takes Anderson, or takes, yeah, he takes, oh no, no, he takes Gallows. He tosses him off the roof. We don't see him again. He grabs Carl Anderson. Boom, tombstone on the roof. We don't see him again. And now it's back to AJ. Slaps it on, basically does a choke slam off the roof into like this this pile of crap. It looks like just piles of of um, of roofing material almost. And now with AJ just really down and out now, Taker gets down off the roof, walks over to him, and he says, "Hey, hey, what's my wife's name?" And here's where it's funny. Like Charlie and I talk a lot about from acting. We talk about choices. When, especially when you're an improv, an improv is really hard. Like I, I, I'm no professor saying that to you, but improv is incredibly hard because it's not just being funny. It's having a variety of choices because you have to be able to pivot from one to the other, to the next, to the next. A great example outside of improv that has to do with wrestling. Whenever you've heard us all three, we joke about when the camera finds somebody in the audience, like maybe if they're at the, um, the commentator's table and there's a person who wants to act like a goofball on TV, you'll notice that they've got about one to two things that they can do. But then when the camera's not going away yet, they're, they kind of have this look on their face like, uh-oh, I don't know what else to do. I've done a thumbs down. I've done the I've done the middle finger. What else can I do? And it's just funny because most of the time they, they kind of have this look on their face like they just they, like. I was about to say they pooped their pants. That's how bad it is. Three kids, that's what it's going to do to you. You start saying everybody pooped their pants. But it looks like they all pooped their pants is what it looks like. They, It's that look like I've run out of choices. Okay, bringing it back to the boneyard. It looks like at one point Undertaker runs out of choices. Because he says to him, hey, uh, hey, Jay, uh, we're just getting started. Nah, man, uh, huh, we're just getting started. He says it like three times. And you're like, okay, okay. And I, and I mean, all respect, man. I'm sure this is getting to be like near the end of that shoot. It's just sort of like, what what else can you say? It's fine. It's fine. It's just one of those things you notice uh, after a while. You start to really pick up on when you can tell a performer is, is 
they, they don't have many other places they can go to with this particular segment. All right. <laughs> he picks AJ up and he takes him over to buy the grave and he stands to him and say, hey man, go out like a man. Uh, uh, and that's when AJ's like, I'm sorry. Oh, you're sorry. You're sorry. Man, he's, don't, don't. Hey, hey man, hey. Don't. I don't know what, I, again, my AJ's all over the place. Hey man, don't, don't, don't bury me. So, uh, you have Taker go, you think I was going to bury you? And it's interesting because he's like, you fought your ass off. And um, he's real complimentary. And you're almost like, oh, interesting. It wouldn't have been like the worst ending to see him do that. To be sort of uh, benevolent almost. But instead, The Undertaker takes a brief moment. And it's not like AJ says anything. It would have been funny if he was like, if he he's made some kind of backhanded remark and then the undertaker turned around but nope taker just takes a moment he's like nah turns around boots aj into the grave aj is out and it's a really intense kind of score with it as well aj um taker goes up to the the digger drops the the drops the dirt onto aj we hear the gong which really does signify that the match is over because you know we don't have a referee here. We don't have anything like that. It's the closest thing to our our cue that this is over with. And you see Taker get down and he walks by the grave and he slowly pulls away like the covering over the the, the headstone over that, that marker where AJ is is quote unquote buried. And you see AJ's name. And the dates of his birth and the dates of his death. It's a really cool touch. And it's also queued up beautifully with the Dead Man theme that 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 plays. Um, it's when we also see AJ's hand. Great image. Even though it's like, you know, it's a fake hand. Whatever. It looks funny. It looks cool. AJ's hand with the glove sticking up out of the dirt. And then it's kind of neat. This is such a good closing. This is so good because... Now it's sort of our epilogue, our mini little, like, minute and a half epilogue here for The Undertaker. You know, he's taken this just this incredible beating. He gets up, he walks over and picks up his bandana, you know, fits it back on. He, um, he then gets back onto his motorcycle, cranks it back up. He's about to drive away, and then he throws up the fist, and then simultaneously the roof explodes again. And as Charlie said, possibly killing Carl Anderson. And then the Undertaker's symbol gets outlined in this awesome purple lighting. Looks awesome. And then we have the Metallica music playing again. Now that we're dead. Picks up with another bit of the chorus. And the Undertaker rides off into the night. And the Boneyard match is over. Before we get into the final leg of this Perfect Ten, where we look at the production side of the Boneyard match, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor, Anchor. Face out one of these big pistol fighters they raise all the fuss about. Don't know where you handle them. Hey, watch out. He's probably got another pistol in Get there. Get up, Lodge. They call Benny back there on a horse. Benny! Come up! We got us the Josie Wales! Oh, brown Rosie, the rose of Alabama. Who is that? Just a boy. Don't want to shut up. Sweet tobacco posy. Pa? Is that ye, Pa? 
I'm gonna eat your paw. Now shut up! Paw. I got the gold right here, Pa. What gold is he talking about? There's no gold. He's crazy. The gold me and Josie robbed from the bank, Pa. Madge, take a look under that there blanket. I got it right here. some help. You get those holes a leaking, I'm gonna lump you with a knotted plow line. They ain't honest. I feel as pert as a rotten buck. Good. Because I ain't hauling you all over Hell's creation. Dribbling blood over half of Missouri. It's got to eat, same as worms. As we started coming down the pike towards Mania, obviously Mania was taking place prior to WrestleMania. So at that point in time, a lot of things were taking place at the same time. So when we got done shooting NXT television, I then went to Vince and was like, so I feel like if there's something that I can take and run with it, that would probably be the most helpful because everybody's going to be running in different directions. And what do you think needs the most for me to look at it, I guess is, is a way of saying it. And uh, he was like, the Boneyard match. And I was like, okay, great. So what is the Boneyard match? He's like, I don't know, just make it good. So one of the, the really genius things about this match is that as opposed to a few other matches where we want to know, like, oh, who are the producers working on the match? And then what was some of the backstage talk about this? This takes on a whole different life of its own because this literally has an incredible behind-the-scenes production history surrounding it. I don't remember what day it was. Michael Hayes and I, I went to Michael Hayes, who was, you know, also an agent on that. And I said, hey, I'm going to grab this Boneyard match with you. He was like, well, thank God. So we drove over to this giant field in the middle of nowhere which was, I guess, I don't know, 30, 40 miles outside of Orlando. And the giant field in the middle of nowhere ended up being like a, a one acre lot and behind this barn at the end of a residential neighborhood with like a house across the street. <laughs> like we got out of the car and I was like, where's the big field? And they were like, no, this is right here. This, this area right here to that street right there. And I was like, you're kidding me. <laughs> And uh, Michael's like, Chip, this ain't gonna work, man. We can't do this. We gotta, we gotta, I gotta call Vince right now, tell him put this in the studio, or we gotta find another location, shoot, this ain't gonna work. And I said, Michael, we're not, this is it. This is the hand we have. This is the cards we've been dealt. We just gotta figure out how to make this work now. And then one of the tricks became as you're beginning to put this together, th there's only so much bandwidth of technology that can go around. So uh, we lay out all this stuff, you know, come up with this concept and ideas. And you know, finally get to a place like, yeah, some of this stuff could work, you know, this might be good. good. And we have this design team that's going to build out this little set. And I get to our tech people and I'm like, so how, how many uh, how many people do I have in a crew for this camera crew? And they were like, right now I got you one camera and I'm trying to get you a second one. And I was like, <laughs> so that don't work. <laughs> so I then went to Vince and was like, you know, I, I pitched him the concept and the idea, and he's like, I love it. That sounds awesome. And then I said, well, problem is, right now I have one camera. And he's like, my God, you can't do it with one camera. 
I said, I have a solution on it. My solution was to use the digital team from NXT, uh, Jeremy Borash, and, and we have a, a, lar- a team of digital shooters that we use there. It's a different format. I you know, said, look, we can shoot it with them and we can do it cinematic style and I can bring a bunch of cameras and I can shoot all at once. I'll shoot it like a film. I'll shoot it in a different format. And, you know, I believe we can make, create something special. So definitely one of the things I was heavily talked about once this match aired was who was involved in putting it together. Now we heard obviously in a lot of what Triple H said in his interview with Corey Graves that he was involved heavily at the request of Vince McMahon. And then you also had Michael P.S. Hayes and then Jeremy Borash, which is very interesting because he was instrumental in helping Matt Hardy produce these types of segments in TNA with the whole broken Matt Hardy character, the final deletion. This was an interesting conglomeration of, of minds working on this. And it is this really, really well done set. It's really well crafted. It took five days to put this thing together and then another five days to tear it down. That's how much was put into this. And what's also fascinating is the fact that you have you have guys who are essentially shooters and set designers who are also having to, in some cases, double play as actors, as the evil druids. And they're not sports entertainers. They're not stunt people. They don't know anything about how to do a choreographed fight. So you have The Undertaker, you have AJ Styles, you have Gallows and Anderson helping out. And that's the really cool part is you see multiple stories that came out. People talking about how there was a real sense of camaraderie on the set. Everybody, nobody really acting like they're above the process. Everybody chipping in and helping to get this thing off the ground. If somebody needs a hand with learning how to take a punch, boom, you have all these guys who have this wealth of knowledge from having done it for decades combined. The next thing I think is really important to talk about is uh, some of the, I don't know, funny kind of accidents that happen on the set with it. Obviously, Taker's Goldberg moment where he just puts his hand through that window and it's all cut up. Tough guy. Take- oh! Oh, God. Oh, son of a bitch. They were all set to stop or shift around or, you know, pause the filming. No, no. They went with it. And, and it works so well. Taker's reaction is just so pure. And it's and it really doesn't skip a beat. This shoot lasts. This is an overnight shoot. It's like an eight, nine hour shoot that starts late in the night and goes all the way pretty much until morning. So that's what also... I. I have done shoots before that are the one night, it's just go for it all. And it's fun, the adrenaline's pumping, you're trying to do so much so quickly, and there are times where you have to sometimes go against the plan, improvise on the spot, and it actually works out really well. Sound design is also critical to this piece. You know, it looks cinematic, but how do you make it also, what are the elements of sound you can bring to this? First off, sound effects. One thing that's just a a nice little nugget that's an add-on to this is, you know, for years in professional wrestling, we're used to wrestlers napping, stomping, creating a sound themselves to indicate that they just punched somebody without, you know, obviously really a clenched fist hitting them, you know? How do you sell a working punch? How do you make people believe that really hurt? We've seen people like The Rock, they slap their thigh. We've seen guys like Bret Hart who were great stompers when they would punch. What's great about this is, Since you're filming this, you can add it in post. Just listen to some of these shots that The Undertaker throws at AJ. Boom! Boom! Get up, boy! Boom! You want it? Boom! Boom! 
It sounds so much more real for the whole thing to, to do this. And of course, I'll tell you, if any of you are fans of Indiana Jones, you know that sound of, of Indy punching out somebody is just one of a kind. And it, it's one of those things that, like, it almost, if it's not in an action movie, that type of hard thap that you hear when somebody punches another person, you know, you feel like you're missing out on something. Also with sound is the soundtrack, the music. This is a, a 23 to 25 minute altogether uh, scene that we get here, this Boneyard match. And yet there are some really, really good sound movements that occur in this. You have in the very beginning, obviously, it's this really kind of supernatural soundtrack that we hear, this suspense, this mystery, this uh, not sure what we're walking into type of feel that's created, this atmosphere. You have this, uh, the visual of the tombstones with the fog rolling in and out, and you have that music that kind of mirrors it, and it's music that leads perfectly into the dead man theme. Then where we talked about, you know, the beginning of Act 2, when the Undertaker hears, hey, dead man, and it's, it's Gallows and Anderson, the music quickly shifts into kind of this twangy guitar. Hey, dead man! We're just getting started! Very reminiscent of like a an old West type of a uh, type of music. This is when our hero is about to be confronted by this huge, l massive group of enemies, and he's going to have to fend them off. And how's he going to do it? And it really does have that Western type of feel to it. The next one is real is the sad violins. Trust me, Undertaker. I'm doing the world a favor. It's after AJ really is taking it to the Undertaker. It's after he's hitting him with the t the literal tombstone, as I'm calling it. And you hear Taker just gasping for air. This is all combined with him going through that wall, and then just AJ just stalking him as he as he tries to crawl away. And you you just get the sense his lungs are collapsed, and it's just he's in a bad way. And this, this, this sad violin music that we hear is so powerful and underscoring just this almost sad demise of this mythic figure. It's been said by many people coming out of this match, and it had been obviously uh, talked about heavily when it comes to the character of The Undertaker. Again, like, he is Clint Eastwood, right? Like, that's what we've been talking about this whole time, is how he has this kind of uh, analogous character to the quintessential Clint Eastwood characters. And in this, he's booked a lot like Clint Eastwood. When Clint Eastwood usually shows up, when you get down to like your basic Clint Eastwood fight, for the most part, he is going to show up and he's going to kick ass from the beginning. And then there's going to be a moment where he's going to slip on the banana peel and he's just going to get his brains kicked in for a while. And what was interesting was, especially when you take 80s Clint Eastwood, an older Eastwood still at this point, it would usually be this younger foe that would just be laying the smackdown on him. And then he would have to make this grizzled comeback. Now, the one thing that's missing that would have been really cool is what I used to call the, the Clint Eastwood cam. And in the middle of a fight, if you go back to any movie where Clint Eastwood has a fist fight, nine times out of ten, the there is going to be a camera that is point of view of his opponent. And you see Eastwood kind of circling him around like a boxer about to punch at the camera as if it was the antagonist's face. That's the only thing that we were almost missing here uh, with this. Now, of course, 
the barbs in the beginning that he throws out, that Taker throws out, are very, very much Clint Eastwood one-liner-esque, and they're beautiful. So I think it is it the comparisons, even literally in how this is filmed, are very, very apt. And I often... I, 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 I would also even get more specific, like, there is definitely a comparison here with Unforgiven, where Clint Eastwood's character is the old gunfighter, the old bounty hunter, the old murderous, just whatever you want to call him, one of the most badass guys in the West, an old man who's now been married, has had children, has become domesticated, similar to what's happened to The Undertaker. Here he is, now, having to confront this this foe this one last score is what it's often called the one last score in a lot of these movies and you can go through the last couple years like we see a lot of our, our our classic heroes brought back for that one last hurrah and that's the feeling you get here and you see him having to you know when you go back to that last scene of unforgiven there's no reason in the world why clint eastwood's william money shouldn't be gunned down but it's the fact that this guy has just strolled in here where between little bill and all the guys there's got to be at least five gunfighters that could all just shoot him down and yet the power of his presence is enough to give him an edge that they cannot overcome and that's exactly what happens here there is no reason in the world why between aj and gallows and anderson and of course the evil druids but you know what they're the putties they're expendable but between those three guys they shouldn't be able to lay waste to him very quickly and yet, and yet, it it's one of those things where just this, he has this mythical quality, this type of presence that automatically gives him this edge. Now, of course, what I think is really cool is they, and this kind of ties into the Unholy Trinity, how it's not just biker taker you're taking on here. You're taking on this, this kind of amalgam of biker taker, booger red, evil undertaker, um, Big evil, I was going to say. The American badass. And then also the dead man. The Lord of Darkness. And that's where we see like he appears just out of nowhere from the grave behind AJ. He has his powers. He just blows up the roof. You know, and then it blows it up again and has a symbol appear behind him. Which, that may be one of the best production elements is the way they, they set up that finale. With the pyro, with the explosions, with the... Um, with the symbol, that part's really cool. And I don't think enough can be said about the the power of Metallica with that too. That Metallica track really helped amplify it. That Unholy Trinity thing is really fascinating because it wasn't something Taker really needed to do, but it was interesting to see him bring it. This this combination of Mark Calloway, the Undertaker Deadman character, and the American Badass all in one. It's interesting. Like Again, a nuance that didn't necessarily need to bring but he did. It'll be interesting if there is something more with that, if there is another match or whatever we get beyond this, but it, it was a nice wrinkle to add for his character. I also couldn't help but be fixated on the three big moves on the roof. You see uh, Gallows first. He gets thrown off. If you look at it, it is identical to The Undertaker throwing Mick Foley off the cage from King of the Ring 98. It looks almost identical to it. And so I was like, okay, cool. What a neat callback. And I'm guaranteeing you guys, I'm reading into this 100%. I'm going way overboard on it. But I thought it was something neat that they did these three things. And then and, uh, Anderson and then Anderson takes a tombstone on top. Now, it's hard to say, like, have, have we seen Taker tombstone somebody on top of the cage? Probably, sure. 
it was just neat that he broke out that move, which is very symbolic of his character from the very beginning, the dead man character all the way through. And then the choke slam that Undertaker gives AJ coming off the roof. There were a couple things that popped in my mind. One, you could think of Shawn Michaels in a little way, shape or form, like how he came off the cage at Hell in a Cell and went through that table, similar to what AJ does here. I don't know if you want to think about Rikishi coming off when Taker basically choke pushes him off the top of the Hell in a Cell and he goes into the the truck of bark or whatever, whatever that stuff is, the mulch. I don't know. I couldn't help but think about those three as being these almost symbolic recreations of of big moments, highlight moments from The Undertaker's career. Now, the reactions. The reactions were really interesting. Uh, if you go through social media, it blew up that night with all these types of all types of wrestling, not just fans, but more so WWE stars that were just really, really in awe and really, really praiseworthy of the match. Now, you can tell day that they, they have to do that or whatnot, but it was just really cool because I don't think there was anything that quite got that type of praise from that first night of WrestleMania. And then The Undertaker, in the time that followed the match, did this interview where he talked about his reactions to the match and how he felt about it. I always envisioned this match happening in, you know, in a live arena. Um, and then uh, somewhere there in the last few weeks or last couple of weeks, you know, when we didn't even know what, you know, what was going to happen the next day, uh, the idea was, was thrown at me about, you know, doing something off site. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's a much better, um, you know that's a much better option than trying to have the match that that AJ and the Undertaker would have inside an empty arena. And the final product, I, I, like I said, I couldn't uh, I couldn't be you know more proud of it. Um, under the circumstances, uh, you know all the different you know things going on, uh, everybody to pull together and, and put something like that out there that was different and was. You know, uh, intriguing. Uh, it was, um, yeah. I, 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 I can't, I can't speak for for AJ, but man, you know, I'm very proud of what we did. There were many elements, intended and unintended, that made this particular match, event, or fight successful. Maybe it's because, again, it's the Undertaker. There is room to speculate that this is his last match. The Instagram, the documentary, all of it. Maybe this is finally the end for the Undertaker. I find it hard to believe he won't be doing something at Survivor Series in celebration of 30 years that he's been in the WWE, but we'll see. If this is a fork in the road, then we are fortunate as fans that either choice represents a win for us. It's either the best way The Undertaker could go out based on how the last six years have gone, or it opens up something even more entertaining in those cinematic spectacles and situations where The Undertaker can be more effective and entertaining than necessarily having a match in the ring. But beyond him, this represents a significant event for WWE in terms of what they can do with not just talent on the roster, but legends as well that can't necessarily bear the physical activity of working a match. If you go back to the 1999 documentary Beyond the Mat, Vince McMahon says exactly what he was hoping fans would be interested in with WWE once they were curious to partake. Some of our success stories, a certain amount of respect comes with that. But hopefully that simply will only be used as an entree to 
encourage someone's interest to then find out what we're really about. We make movies. Now granted, what he probably meant back then was the groundwork for WWE films and studios, which didn't make much of a dent in the pop culture lexicon like wrestling did. Interestingly enough though, is the fact that the Boneyard match, coupled with the positive reviews of the Firefly Funhouse, provide WWE the opportunity to partake in cinema once again, but in a way that is much more of a natural fit. The problem with a movie like The Condemned, beyond the fact that it honestly wasn't very good, is the fact that you have Steve Austin playing a character named Jack Conrad. We don't want to see Steve Austin be anyone other than Stone Cold. If The Condemned was a WWE story where Austin played Stone Cold trapped on an island trying to survive, that is already a much more improved movie. Now imagine Austin, or The Rock, or even Sting, or Mick Foley being brought in and used for some of these cinematic matches. It would be a perfect showcase for them at this point in their post-wrestling careers, and you can't tell me that seeing The Undertaker and Sting in one of these wouldn't be awesome, or maybe even more, having Stone Cold and The Rock go back to back against the world or whoever, or even, or how about this, John Cena in the aftermath of the Firefly Funhouse. What if WWE took this same approach and filmed a series of vignettes that show Cena in his everyday life, or working on a movie, or some other kind of scene? Everything seems to be okay. But then he starts hearing The Fiend, and he starts seeing hallucinations that start to make him believe he is not okay. And gradually, the Firefly Funhouse match is driving him mad to the point where it is affecting him in everyday life. Now fast forward to a moment where the fiend is going overboard on a baby face, let's say Roman Reigns, and Cena goes in to make the save, but then he pauses. He's affected again, and then instead of stopping the fiend, he joins him. Cena becomes the heel. But the thing is, we got to see the process gradually unravel. If we could see any babyface gradually unravel into becoming a heel, it should be Cena, the guy we've wanted to be a heel for years. This is what high production cinema could do for WWE in an age where the elusive casual fan base is so coveted. If nothing else, to create something this unexpected in the Boneyard match that surpassed expectations beyond what it was originally intended to be makes this a special occurrence and not just the history of WrestleMania, but the wrestling business itself. And it allowed a special and significant character in The Undertaker to have a moment front and center one more time that quietly echoed the pageantry and spectacle of his monumental undefeated streak and gave fans an indelible moment that they will never forget. This has been The Perfect Tens as part of the New Blood Rising podcast. Please share your comments about this episode on our Twitter, at New Blood Pod, and on Facebook, New Blood Rising Podcast. My name is William Rankin, and I thank you for listening. The question that I have to ask you, and I love hearing it back, are you alive? Are you alive? It sounds as if you are. And I know you know what I mean by that. And I hope you know what I mean by this. If you want to live forever, first, you must die.